The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. If any of you get skittish uh, when someone opens a Bible near you, you get a little strange uh, about just what we just did. You just stood for the reading of the word, and you're like, I have absolutely zero sense of reverence for this. I'm not sure why on earth a church that in a progressive city like ours and in an enlightened age like ours would still open the Bible. And, um, I, I, I get it. I understand. I, I empathize. For many of us, there's all different reasons why we turn to the scriptures, um, why we we think they're important, why they reveal something about what it means to be human, what it means to relate to, uh, some of you have a hard time even saying the word God, what it means to relate to the divine, what it means to relate to our spirituality. And for others of us, and this is the stuff that freaks some of you out, which is this is like the word of God, the authoritative word of God. And you go, that's a bit much. I just want you to know like that's okay that that's a bit much for you. And I want to just invite you to have an open mind. Why are these stories still told? Why do they still pop up in our favorite artists' work? Why is it that um, the idea of human progress, of redemptive arc of the universe, of human rights, all of these things have been directly informed by an understanding of the world that comes from this Bible why was it that people we often revere, like a Dr. King, like derives his understanding of loving your enemy and battling against racial injustice, systemic racism? Like, what, what, what was it about the scriptures that speak into that? And so I just want to encourage you, th- those aren't like, oh, because him, then you should. But I want to, maybe that would allow you just for a moment to open up your mind to go, what about these stories? What about these stories that people have turned to about how they have related to the divine, related to God? there's something there that why this book is still around. And so wouldn't I want to explore what they have thought about the unfolding revelation of who God is or or just maybe might be for you. Um, So with that, this text today uh, is really exciting for me and mostly because things like the fruits of the spirit, love and pace, love and peace and patience and kindness, these things are like, yeah, everybody's into those. Are you really going to talk for 30 minutes about kindness? No. I'm going to talk for 40 minutes about kindness. I'll try to keep it 30. Like, why do I need to know more about, wouldn't it be nice to be kind? I think so often we trivialize the fruits of the Spirit. What this writer is saying is that the life of heaven, life with God, when you're underneath the kingship of Jesus, this is the stuff that starts to happen. When you begin to submit yourself to the way of Jesus and to the person of Jesus, when you realize that you've been forgiven for your sins, there's nothing you could do that would ever make God love you less, that you've been freed from death and given this eternal security, these things begin to well up in you. It's almost like, think about this, a seed has been planted in soil, and then this plant that begins to grow up will bear this sort of fruit. That said, This same writer is very clear that you cannot cultivate that fruit and get some like, like, you know, twisted tomatoes. Anyone ever grow up tomatoes? You get those like little like dud green blue ones. You know what I'm talking about? They just like don't form. Like I may have planted this where there was some, I don't know, like lead that was deposited into the ground. Like just something not working. Or some of you just don't know how to water. But 
We know when there's something like, oh, I can see what should be a tomato there, but that is not one of those big, red, juicy ones that appeared in that gardening blog that I was reading. You can cultivate this fruit. This has been planted in us from God and that we can be surface kindness because there's two kinds of kindness. There's surface kindness, people with a natural disposition. You probably know people in your life who have a natural disposition toward kindness. Maybe you're one of those people. There's something about the way you were raised. You're just incredibly polite. And that's wonderful for many of you, right? For the average New Englander, I've found that that makes a lot of people really nervous. Anybody who's like, hey, how are you? Can I do anything for you? You're like, what do you want? I don't know if you heard of like Southern hospitality. Anyone you come from the South? Anyone born south of the Mason-Dixon line? Just want to be clear on who I'm about to offend. Um, no, I know it's great, but I, like Southern hospitality is confusing to me because it's, it's sort of like, hey, come over to my house. We'd love to have you over sometime. And then you don't get the invitation. And then you like ask around, like what, what? they said they wanted to invite me over. I've actually had eight people say they want to invite me over. And then someone just leans into you and just goes, yeah, yeah, that's just Southern hospitality. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, yeah, you should come over. Oh, be not, oh, be, oh bless your heart. Come on over. Yeah, you actually find out that's just sort of how things go. That's just, that's just the way we talk. That wasn't a slam on all things Southern, just to be really clear. I think we have two kinds of kindness, surface kindness, polite, niceness, things that are very face value. And then we have what the scriptures uh, call kindness, which is like a depth of kindness. The word is incredibly slippery. If you were to just Google, what is the biblical definition of kindness? You're going to get all sorts of stuff. Its roots in the Old Testament are the same roots, hasad, for the words for loving kindness and goodness. It, 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 when it crystallizes in the Greek, the way Paul uses it, it's something that's like actionable. It's like weaponized, goodness and love moving in an outward direction. So this is a, a definition I borrowed from a, a scholar, a friend of mine. Kindness is compassionate, other-directed generosity. So if you're taking notes, this will be important to keep up there. I don't have slides for you today. I apologize. Kindness is compassionate, other-directed generosity. Kindness is compassionate, other-directed generosity. Something is flowing out of us into other people's lives. So why should we value having a depth of love and kindness? Why should we move beyond just the niceties of politeness? And what does it look like um, to have this sort of deep-rooted, um, Christ-inspired, God-empowered kindness. So first of all, this sort of actionable goodness reflects who God is. We so often, uh, I have found so frustrated, and many of you have, when you turn on the news and someone is talking about God as if they've never picked up the Bible before. It's like they picked up like a, a, a I don't know, a a, like political one sheet on how to best weave Jesus into your politics. But like they haven't actually picked up the Bible. Anyone ever get frustrated by this? You meet a friend who's like, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. And then you ask them, what? Look, tell me about this Jesus you don't believe in. And then they give an explanation and you're like, yeah, I don't believe in that Jesus either because he doesn't exist. Anyone ever had this moment before? Like what is God like? This Psalm that we read at the beginning, I want to read again. The Lord, just one little snapshot of thousands in the Bible. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in love. We talked about this is the most quoted verse uh, in the Old Testament last week. We were talking about patience. He won't accuse. He's not going to harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Just that verse. Like we can spend days, weeks, months. He doesn't treat you as what you've done deserves. That's pretty good. Right? Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. He's like, remove them. Yeah, I know you're covered in shame right now, but he's removed it. He's removed it. It's not there anymore. As far as a father has compassion on his children. Do you have a compassionate father? So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. Like he remembers that we're fragile and broken. He remembers from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant. To become more godly is to become more kind. We need to like know and remember that kindness reflects who God is. Kindness reflects who God is. We want to cultivate godliness. Many of you come, uh, come to home groups and you wake up really early on a Wednesday morning uh, to do uh, discipleship, uh, learning community. You're studying the scriptures. You're doing extra Bible studies with other people. You're hungry to learn more about the things of God. You're getting involved with serving the poor. You want to, you want to feel that and know that. We cultivate godliness um, or a kindness, because this is what God is like. And this is clear, demonstrated most clearly in the person of Jesus. Most of the things that we love about Jesus have to do with his kindness. We enter into these stories, we see time and time again. Jesus, for instance, isn't too busy for kids. All right, he invites the kid, hey, come to me. This is what he tells his disciples who are caught up in the speed and the rat race and the competitiveness of the age. And he just goes, yeah, yeah, this, these kids are going to teach you something. He welcomes the kids. He's kind to those who are outside of the social group, people who are deemed by everyone else who has no value. Jesus sees sinners, broken, jacked up people, and he's gracious to them. The Samaritan woman, if you remember, he's gracious to her, he's kind to her. The people who everyone is too busy for, Jesus has time for. So much of these accounts in the New Testament, the, the gospels, the stories about Jesus are about Jesus being kind to people. So we cultivate kindness because this is what God is like. We practice this sort of generosity of goodness, this, this weaponized love, this movement because this is what Jesus is like. Two, we, we, we cultivate kindness. So I'm just kind of laying out some basics here. Why should we cultivate kindness? And, and if the engine isn't just, we should cultivate kindness because being kind to people is great. We know that kindness, right, can be used in all sorts of messed up ways. I meant to grab this clip just because I reference The Office too often. And most of you, not everyone has actually seen The Office or has memorized parts of The Office. I have a problem. There's this episode where, where Dwight and Andy, these two characters that are easily the most awkward in the show, and they're constantly trying to one-up each other through the whole episode. Like they're being like, one's being really kind. Oh, let me get the door for you. Oh, let me bring some bagels in for work. Oh, let me do this. Oh, let me shine your shoes. Oh, let me give you a massage. Like the whole episode is about, well, I, I will never leave an act of kindness left unreturned. 
right? Because we know that things like kindness, even something as good as that, can be turned into something that is idolatrous, that is self-centered, that doesn't actually come from a place of deep generosity. And we're usually only kind to people that we either want something for or that we like. I found in the same way loving my enemies is really hard. Being kind to my enemies is a bit difficult. So, so when we talk about, okay, kindness, we, we want to know that kindness reflects who God is. That gives us as followers of Jesus at least some motivation to cultivate this. Secondly, kindness reflects what God has done. Kindness reflects what God has done. Titus 3, 3 to 7, one of my favorite verses ever. Lean into this one. At one time, we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus is never trying to guilt people into behavior change. Guilt says, how do I like, get rid of this immediately? Guilt begs us to, like, how do I offload this quickly? If I'm getting something you know, from it. But because we are only saved by the grace of God, therefore we can be kind to everyone. People whose society does not deem worthy at all. This is what God has done for all of us. You've heard the phrase many times, I'm sure people have said it up front here. The, you know, I'm just a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Like the posture of the Christian, it's not about being self-deprecating. It's just about recognizing that I needed a savior and someone to reach out and be faithful and loving. And this is what I believe about the nature of the universe, that it's kind to even me. When Jesus is talking about love and loving your enemy, he's like, look, my mercy and kindness, that falls on everybody. For everybody. So how could you not? That's like a regular mantra in my life. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. How could you not? The thing that most often motivates me to apologize, the thing that most often motivates me to shift into a place of, of owning my faults has been that, oh gosh, Andrew, how could you not? How could you not? How could you not extend kindness? How could you not extend love and patience and forgiveness here? This is what's been extended to you. Sometimes people wonder, like, what is the point of worship? I think one key point of worship is that we're constantly being reminded of who we are and who God is. And so when we get that relationship right, it spills over. Uh, worship's not really practical. I'll just get to, the, get to the sermon. No, 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 no. Like the... the the, the, the weight and power, one of the things of worship that is so powerful for your formation is just continually being reminded of the grace of God on your life and how that then translates into how we treat people if we believe God has been kind to us. So that's why Christians should be kind. Simple, right? Right? No, I mean, someone's like, mm-hmm, yep, got it blessings to you <laughs> what are we up against what are we up against we're up against random acts of kindness which is great by the way I love me some random acts of kindness but we're up against almost a trivializing of things kindness only in order to make ourselves feel good now that's not to disparage that I believe that there's blessing that comes with being generous and kind there's a reason why 
um, sociologists and studies have pointed to why this is so beneficial to your own personal health. When you give of yourself, you feel better. I think it's because we're hardwired that way. It's what God is like. That's what it is to be dialed in and in tune with the nature of the universe. I think there's a reason for all those things. This is what rabbis have been saying for thousands of years and didn't need a poll to point out. Didn't need a study to point out. But it's fun, right, when science confirms, like, yeah, being kind to people a lot makes you feel way better. Yep. Yep. But the problem is, is this ends up becoming, again, just sort of a surface thing. We live in a city where everything is working to stop kindness from being a functional value. It's the nature of our city. You don't advance in Providence if you are really kind. Not that you can't advance, but kindness is not the thing that causes advancement. Right? Just kindness on your resume and your character does not help you advance at Brown University. Oh, well, you, you're, you're really kind and you're really sweet and you seem to do a lot of good things for I can tell by your character. You should definitely be in this class. You should definitely, we're, gonna, we're just going to scoot you ahead of grade. I'm not saying that should be the only thing on your resume to allow you to move forward in an institution or a job. But the point is, is it's not reinforced. It's not reinforced. The ecosystem that we're in makes people something to be competed against. Everything is a competition. And competition by its very nature sees people as something to be threatened by, not valued. Sees people as something to be threatened by, not valued. We only value people when we can leverage things in such a way or communicate that value so often when we can get ahead. And when this happens in the church, doing things out of selfish ambition, doing things just for yourself, well, the scripture has a whole lot of all, like, really hard things to say to us. That's when it gets really gross is when you see that in the church. Being a selfish jerk is how you make it. No one really says that in Providence. But we all kind of know that to be true kind of know that to be true and secondly i would just say hurry is a huge thing hurry is an enemy of kindness we talked about this with patience you have no time or no margin in your life for those that will inconvenience you not benefit you maybe not even lift your spirits they're difficult people although we have a really hard time being a church a really hard time when people encounter true depth of kindness has an incredible, incredible power. Because, again, I want to get to this issue of cultivating it. I know I have to convince no one in this room that being kind is good. But we have two sets of values in this world. We have resume values, and then we have eulogy values. Do you know what I'm talking about? We have resume values, which is what am I doing to extend my job and to keep moving, the things that we want to put on our resume, and have you done this, 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 and this? And then we have eulogy values, which are the things like, he was a good dad. He had so much character. You ever been to a funeral? This happened one time. It was heartbreaking. I was at a funeral of somebody who was so accomplished, but you could tell that his kids had to like sort through and really nuance so they could be honest with themselves and still say something nice about dad. But dad had killed it. By every metric that our culture wants you to kill it by. Head of a massive organization. Like unbelievably wealthy. Multiple homes. They were like, he's just 
done so much. And he has loved our country by providing jobs for our, our, our country. And it's been, which is a noble thing, but it was like, that's not the thing that's usually said at a funeral when there's nothing else like he was just an amazing dad. I felt loved and no every person who came upon him, who came across him, was like, he is so kind. He always had time for the person that was hurting. None of that was said. Are you feeling any conflict in your own heart? That we, we have eulogy values, we have obituary values, and then, and then we have resume values. David Brooks says, what our society is obsessed with is the very things that is robbing society of what it actually longs for. Let me say it one more time. What our society is obsessed with Resume values is the very things that it is, is robbing society of what it actually longs for. We want, res, we want eulogy values. We want obituary values. We want to cultivate those things in our heart. And yet we spend so much of our time on our resume values. And so to be revolutionary, to be a person of the kingdom, to be of the life of heaven, to follow the way of Jesus. Look, part of my job, my main job description as a pastor is just to help people walk in the way of Jesus. I'm teaching people the way of Jesus. To walk in the way of Jesus is to cultivate kindness. To be covered, to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. Like, like to be so close to Jesus that you're like getting his like very dust kicked up on you. To like know what he is like and know him intimately and know his spirit with us is to be somebody who practices the way of godly depth of Kindness. This is what God is like. Jesus is showing us what God is like. Kindness is compassionate, other-directed generosity. Compassionate, other-directed generosity. So how do we show kindness? Uh, I want to share just a couple things as we close. You guys all with me? A couple things as we close. Um, these are not profoundly intellectual, uh, but I honestly believe they're life-changing. These are not going to go, you know, I'm not going to hear any like, mm. I'm probably not going to get any moves, Christian moves on this one. <laughs> you guys know the Christian moo, right? Mm. I love those, by the way. Mm. Mm. Cud. That was a cud in the middle there. But I think these are, are actually, uh, I'm going to use this word um, specifically uh, or intentionally. I think they're revolutionary. First is to practice Generosity. To practice practical generosity. Practical generosity. If you're making notes, practical generosity. What is love? 1 John 3.16. Everyone loves to talk about love. Love wins. We want to be a loving people. Be more love. Be more inclusive. So often we don't actually have a definition of what we're working with. As followers of Jesus, this is probably our key definition. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Pity there, by the way, is not how we think about pity. This isn't like you should feel sorry for them. Like, no, who engages them? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Practical generosity. Now, I know immediately some of you, especially students in the room, are like, I can't afford to be kind. And I just want to humbly submit to you, you can't afford not to. For your own soul. For your eulogy values. You're building a culture in your life. If you say, I don't have money, or I don't have time to be kind to people, 
Again, kindness is not just like as you go. To go out of your way to practice gen- for practical generosity. You build a culture in your life that says kindness is attached to an amount of prosperity rather than an internal value. If you do that, what will happen is you will just scale up the problem because no one ever really has enough money. You're just going to scale the problem up. If you're already saying now, yep, you only have just enough money to like buy a coffee. Okay, what does it mean to pra- have practical generosity where you're giving some things away, where you're blessing those around you? If you say, I, I can't really do that and I can't really swing that, a problem will form very quickly in your heart. Um, I, I've been on the receiving end of some incredible generosity. Um, I was thinking specifically about a, a friend of mine who, whose wife was... Um, they just didn't have enough money to make it. He was in uh, vocational ministry, um, you know, despite m- my jean jacket. Um, I don't actually get paid a lot of money to do what I do. Um, <laughs> this isn't a lucrative job. And he was in, a, in just like a, a brand new youth pastor job, part-time, didn't have enough money, had just had a child. And they looked at their finances and he said, he looked at his wife and they had had the conviction that she was going to hopefully be able to stay home at least for the first year or two. Um, and she was like, oh, we can't afford to do this. I need to go back to work. And so she started working at a Starbucks, um, and uh, she could get, they could get, um, you know, get um, benefits. Um, disc. <laughs> I just, just real quick for the people in the back, I was struggling with the words benefits. She went to Starbucks, and someone up front just goes, you get discounts, coffee discounts? That was the whole plan. <laughs> whole plan. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so this, this is the thing. So somebody from their church came in, saw his wife there working at Starbucks, and said, hey, I thought you guys just had a kid, and you were hoping to stay home. Is everything okay? And she said, yeah, we can't really afford to do that right now. And so she said, um, he, th- th- this, this man said to um, my buddy's wife, said, why don't you just give him a, can, can, you, can I give you my card, and I, would, you, would you guys call me? Would you guys call me? So sure enough, you know, they're like, well, this is interesting, and well, we'll follow up on this. So they called, and I explained their situation, and he said, you guys had that conviction of being able to want to, to, want to stay back and, and with, your, with your kids, and I know how hard it is to jump back into the workforce just after you've had a child. So they're talking through all this, and again, this is just their conviction as a family, but they literally didn't have enough money to even have this as an option. And so he just said, I'm just going to pay your, what you would be making at Starbucks, I'm going to pay your salary for the year. And then if you guys are open to it, I'd love for you, my wife and I, we do marriage counseling, we go to the church, we'd love for you to, to meet with us and to be with us and for us to kind of just help you through. We know it's really hard when you have your first kid and how do you navigate marriage and life. And, and so it was just, my buddy describes this as just the overflowing kindness. It was just unbelievable, the practical generosity of somebody who is willing to readjust their life for that. Uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Boston uh, had this moment where he had three or four friends just look at what was going on in his life and the, the exhaustion and the just burning, like he just was just, just not stopping at all. And they said, uh, and, and he's just this very like just together guy. He's the kind of guy you look at and you're like, that guy doesn't need anything. He's fine. And these friends who were pretty close to him knew otherwise. So they pull him aside one day. They, they surprised him, ambushed him at a birthday party. And they said, sit down, shut up. Don't say anything. We're going to talk to you for a little bit. It's like, okay, it's a nice happy birthday to me. And they began to just talk to him about the ways in which they want to look out for him. We want to be in your corner for as long as possible. We're not here for your church. We're here for you personally. And so the stories that began to come out of, he has, by the way, I think nine kids. Dave has nine kids, something like that. 
Yeah, it's crazy. He's adopted three, and he's got like the United Nations in his house. It's pretty insane. And so there's a lot of stress on the family system. And so they're coming over and babysitting, and they're going and caring. There's this one favorite story where as he's, they're providing financially for him, they're making sure he's okay. They ask him three questions like, how is your marriage? How is your work life? Going through these basic things with the kindness of both caring and of continuing to pour out just resources and knowing that no matter what happens, we are going to be in your corner. So one day, one of them uh, had come over and stopped by and was meeting with my buddy Dave. And then sure enough, this, uh, one of their kids was uh, complaining about how they didn't have any fruit in the house or something like that, just like a normal kid thing to do. And, and uh, his friend turns to him and he goes, hey, do you, uh, do you have any, do you have any, um, uh, or he says, oh, what, what do you really want? And so the, 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 I can't remember if it was six, seven-year-old started to explain about like these bananas that they really wanted and uh, this story about how they had gotten bananas at this fruit stand down in New York this one time. You're going to see where the story's going pretty quickly. So this buddy who had a day of work ahead of him decides the, that night to drive down to New York City to go to a fruit stand pick up like crates and crates and crates of fruit. This is totally unnecessary. It's like a little kid whining about not having some bananas in the house. And brings and knocks on the door of all of this fruit that morning, of all of this stuff from this fruit stand down in New York. Like just these moments of practical generosity and great kindness that wells up, that that is not self-serving. These are good practices that help us actually cultivate, cultivate and cultivate kindness in our hearts. Two, remembering the backstory. So finding opportunities to practice generosity, for practical generosity, and then two, remembering the backstory. Uh, Stephen Covey tells this story uh, of being on the subway one day. And uh, he goes in, it's like morning in Manhattan, he's really excited about the opportunity to just have a quiet train ride, reading the New York Times, and then sure enough, this father gets on with like four, four kids, three or four kids, and the kids quickly turn this incredibly quiet train car into a jungle gym. They are everywhere, all over the place, and he's just kind of like, Biting his tongue, waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, turning up the headphones, can't stop. He walks over and tells them, he tells the, the dad, he goes, hey, um, I, can you just, can you please try to get your, your, your kids are killing me. Like, you, can you please get them to just calm down a little bit? And I'm sure he did it in the most kind way possible, but it was still pretty direct. Like, you got to get your kids under control. Um, and so I, I Pull up the excerpt here. Uh, he goes, uh, yeah, excuse me, your children are incredibly disruptive. And so the dad turns to Stephen Covey and says, I'm so sorry. We're coming from the hospital where their mother has just died. Uh, I think they're just having a hard time dealing. Yeah, and then a switch just like clicks in him, right? Because it would click in all of us. We go, one, I'm the worst human being alive. Two, what can I do? Well, can, I'm so I'm so sorry. Can I do anything for you? Um, when we remember that everybody, you know, this always gets attributed to some early church father. I don't know where the quote actually comes from, but like, remember that everybody is fighting a big fight. Remember that everyone is in a fight. And so, when we can remember that people have a backstory. This is a way to cultivate kindness. Those snap judgments that we constantly make, that incredible impatience. Like we're not even on the spectrum of thinking, how can I be kind to this person? We're like in moving in the opposite direction of judgment. Before we make assumptions, you have no idea what's going on in other people's life. So can we just be kind to one another because of Jesus? This is what Jesus has been toward us. How could we not extend this? We need to remember people's backstory. One, one uh, Greg Boyd says, remember uh, how 
Like imagine everyone being three years old. See everyone as if they were three. Because little kids are awesome, usually. <laughs> right? Someone who is like, what turned? Like think about this when you come across your like cynical, jaded, angry, whatever, annoying friend. Like something has happened in their life that turned a fun-filled three-year-old into a cynical, angry 26-year-old. Something happened in their life. Remember the backstory. Consider the backstory. Consider that everyone has fought a great fright. It's probably a series of people being really unkind to them that shaped them that way. Maybe you have an opportunity to, uh, to fire back. We forget that people are dragging their hurt into the room and they're dragging it in with a happy, pasted smile on their face. Three, noticing. These are just tips that I think are helpful. Noticing people. Matthew 25. This is like this, this really epic uh, ending to the life of Jesus where he's talking about like judgment and what judgment's gonna look like at the end of the age. Jesus, he says, I, I will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the internal fire prepared by the devil. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also then will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison and did not help you? What did they not do? These people in this story that Jesus is telling, they didn't what? They didn't help each other. But even before that, right, they didn't even notice. You're right, they didn't help each other, but why didn't they help these people? Jesus is going, you didn't see me. In other words, you didn't see them. Jesus is saying the central to the kingdom of God, to the life of heaven, is literally noticing what people are going through. You didn't notice when I was hurt, when I didn't have clothes, when I was in prison. You didn't notice. You didn't notice the brokenness around you. We are going to apparently stand account before God and give an account for our life, and much of the account of our life will be whether or not we noticed what people were going through. So maybe a, a, a way to cultivate kindness for you first and foremost is, I don't have any bandwidth to notice. In fact, my wife accuses me of that most often. My husband accuses me of that most often. I can tell my kids do that because they say, daddy, 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 three times every single time they want to get my attention. It's not because they're just little annoying kids. It's because you never respond to the first daddy. Forgive me for pushing a little bit here. Our friends who we had no idea all of a sudden just stopped going to church and we're not sure why. They just stopped going to home group and we didn't notice what's happening in their life. There are folks in our lives who seem pleasant and great and then begin to like slip into like a really sad state of affairs and then do something that kind of annoys you and you end up pushing them further away when you never ask, what on earth happened? Notice ways to cultivate kindness. We can engage with practical generosity. We can remember that everyone's fighting a good fight. Everyone has a story and we can begin, um, we can begin to just notice people. And what happens when kindness moves too from the personal to the institutional is like what's happened. Uh, just I've gotten an opportunity to see this at my friend's um, uh, coffee place. Many of you know Brian Gibb who, who uh, owns Bolt Coffee. You should give a woot for, for Bolt Coffee. Um, woot. <laughs> um, 
the conversations that I've gotten to have with him, and I asked him like late last night, hey, will you just send me your values over really quick? Because we'd have this conversation about things that they were trying to cultivate in their business. And I don't know if you know this, but Bolt is, like a, is a kind of like a high-end coffee place. You, many of you know this because you don't go there because you can't afford a cup of coffee right there. Right, because it's really good coffee. And oftentimes at coffee places like that, there is an, an, uh, an understanding that the baristas will treat you as idiots. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like there's kind of an understanding, like if you go into that coffee shop, you better know exactly what to order and you better not order a caramel macchiato. Like, do you have any syrups? And one of my favorite moments was seeing somebody ask for this at the Dean Hotel to ask, like, I think it was for, like, vanilla, or do you have any syrups? And the response, I'm expecting, like, huh. I almost gave them a, you are at the wrong coffee shop, girl. Like, I, I, and instead, the response was, oh, you know, we don't have, we don't have that, but what I could do. Oh, no, you know, we don't, we don't have those here, but maybe I could do, oh, I'm so sorry we don't have that. If you know anything about coffee culture, you know, you don't apologize. You, like, wear that as a badge of honor. We have no syrups here. Or that coffee shop, you know? And I only know this from just like backroom conversations with Brian, but the culture that they're trying to cultivate when kindness moves into systems is, is, a, is a shop that for all intents and purposes would have every right, maybe would even play into their allure to be sort of standoffish and snotty. Like a core value in that is like, we're gonna cultivate kindness. We're gonna be inclusive of people. We're gonna build community. We're going to see people when they come in because the barista, just like the, the person who's cutting your hair or the bartender, end up being people that become sounding boards for our stories. There's a vision beyond that. When kindness moves not just from the personal but into systems, it actually can be such a beautiful thing to behold. So I just leave you with this as we close. Spurgeon says you can judge a person by what they groan for. I could end every sermon with that. What he's saying is, I can judge what like, a person, I can get a sense of a person by what makes them ache. And so do we long and pine for the things of Jesus? Do we, in, in recognizing that we have been so forgiven and so loved, that blessing is upon us and that we are people that operate from blessing, not for it. Oh, Lord, if we recognize all of that, then, then do we groan for life to break through in our friend groups? Do we groan to see the people in our lives blessed and experience the kindness of God through us? To experience the kindness of God through us, to cultivate kindness, to groan for greater, all of these fruits of the Spirit, for more love and patience and more peace and kindness, for more self-control. These fruits are all, you know, crushed together in what it means to be alive to the way of Jesus. Our city runs on resume values. But we, as followers of Jesus, right, it's not just we want to care about what's read at our, at our uh, funeral. It's that we have our eyes set on that, the life of heaven. We're not, we're not obsessed with the things here on earth. 
the, the, the things that we value first and foremost. Climbing the ladder is great. Succeeding in your job is great. Working really hard and having excellence in your work. These things are great. They're great. But before any of that, we want to cultivate the sort of character that we know is already beginning to spring up in us as people who call Jesus their king. What our society is obsessed with is the very things that is robbing it of what it longs for. See, I think people long for this, to see revolutionary kindness. Christians, ancient church, um, they, were, the, uh, they, they were called this Greek word Christos. Now what's interesting is that the word for kindness in the Greek is Christus, U.S. instead of O.S. And so one historian says this as we close. We know from the early church fathers that many people during the first century were confused about what these strange followers of Jesus were called. Because the Greek word for Christ, Christos, was so similar to the word for kind, Christos, apparently many people mistakenly, though perhaps fittingly, called Jesus' earliest followers the kind ones. The kind ones. I love that. In other words, they were mixing up the words and like, oh, those are the, called the kind ones? And there was no disconnect. They're like, oh, that makes sense. They are pretty kind. Right? They like messed it up. But as they, there was no disconnect. Oh, yeah, those are the kind ones. Sanctuary church. We're going to change our vision, right? Sanctuary church, the kind ones. Sanctuary church, the patient ones. Sanctuary church, the self-giving, enemy-loving ones. Sanctuary church, the peacemakers. Sanctuary church, the kind ones. Where do you need to be reminded today as we close in singing and close at communion? Where do we need to be reminded this morning of God's loving kindness towards us? Because that needs to be the engine. It can't just be our own like willpower. In light of what we believe about the very nature of the universe. Even if today you're still like, yeah, I can't go God, can't go Jesus. Just stay with me. We believe that at the depths of all things, like what's at the base of reality, the base note and hum underneath everything is kindness and the universe is implicit and somehow inherently kind to you. If you were to just to believe that and couldn't believe anything else that we're talking about, you know that would begin to change things. That's what's most true. That's what's lining yourself up with reality, ultimate reality. And so we as followers of Jesus are putting just a bit more flesh on that as Jesus did. And saying, no, no, we actually believe that despite the brokenness that we go through and the ache of the world, that our God has been kind to us. And that becomes the energy, the engine that we need to propel us to be people of radical kindness. Christos, the kind ones. So as we come to the table, let us receive and remember the kindness of God by celebrating communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to the table and as we sing together, as we close our time, I ask, Lord, that you, um, those of us that need to be uh, woke in this moment, awakened to your kindness, that as we sing of it, that we would be reminded of, of your kindness and goodness and, and love for us, Lord, 
that you would begin to place people into our, into our minds, Lord, that we need to be kind to. That you would just bring um, forward, Lord, maybe it's none of the things I mentioned, but other practices to cultivate, Lord, this fruit of what it is to walk with you. And as we come to the table, to the bread and to the cup, we are reminded of the most wonderful and beautiful act of kindness that the world has ever seen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. As we come to the table, the last thing here is that verse. There are people in your life you have unresolved conflict with, and there's an opportunity that you have. <clears throat> when we come and take part in the great kindness of Jesus here, we do a disservice to it, to this moment. If we have not um, examined uh, where there needs to be healing within the body, within the gathered church. So if there's anyone you need to text or talk to, need to haul back today, I encourage you to do that. And then for others, those of you who are sitting here going, I want to say yes to the kindness of God today. I want to encourage you, line up in this line here as you come forward and pray with someone. Come and say, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to know more about this kindness. And there's some folks over here who can help you take the next step in that. Maybe today there's something in you. You just need prayer. You just need someone to care for you. Again, I encourage you, line up in this line and, and take the time as we sing and close to be prayed for. Lastly, as we come forward, um, there's going to be two baskets that are right here. Um, one way that we practice uh, generosity in our community is by giving. And so we have an opportunity to engage in that practice this morning and to practice generosity. So if you brought a gift today uh, to give, you can place that in one of these baskets as you come forward. Um, if you give in this community, this is a, a way that we do that is we, we regularly make sure there are the needy are taken care of. And we... we we make sure our hearts are prepared um, and open to God by giving. Uh, and the digital information of giving we'll put up on the screen for a moment. So with that, Lord, we pray for the bread and the cup. We pray for the last few remaining moments of our service, these last five minutes together, of taking communion, of giving, and of singing. God, would your spirit fall on this place? In your name we pray.